I'm Dr. Jacqueline Champlain, a family medicine physician in Austin, Texas. And joining me today is my friend and colleague, Aaron. Hello, my name is Dr. Aaron King. I'm a family medicine physician in San Antonio, Texas. Please take a moment and review the disclaimers Let's get started. Today we're going to talk about the pathophysiology of type 2 diabetes in older patients. We'll also talk about some of the higher rates of premature death, disability that we see in this older population. Obviously with diabetes in our older adults, we have a greater risk of hyperglycemia and hypoglycemia, and we need to take that into consideration. And then finally, we're going to talk about some of the implications of these physiologic factors into quality of life and how we manage diabetes in this patient population. I'm excited to review the pathophysiology with you. All right, great. So what we see here first is that diabetes does disproportionately affect older adults. And as we look, as patients get older, we see that not only does the prevalence, but also the incidence of diabetes go up as well. You can see over age 65 that the total number of cases is actually quite high and much higher than our younger adult populations. In addition to that, what we see is that because there are more and more older adults, Again, not only the incidence, but also the prevalence of diabetes goes up quite a lot, as you can see on the slide on your right. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about how this affects your practice. Yeah, I mean, definitely, Aaron. I mean, we as their primary care providers have to consider sort of what the, what the most patients are going to have. So I feel like this is where the bulk of the patients seem to struggle. And I think we have to be highly suspicious that as people get older that they could develop diabetes. So here we have a very interesting study. If we look at age, we, we also have to think about beta cell function. And you know, the beta cell is so critical to how we think about diabetes and its production of insulin and how we ultimately treat diabetes. And in this VADT uh, study, what we see here is that beta cell function wanes as patients get older. We see the C-peptide levels drop. And this has a couple different implications, as you know. Uh, one is that this chronic glucotoxicity ultimately impairs that beta cell and keeps it from recovering, right? So we don't really see that rebound as patients get older. In addition to that, that hyperglycemia seems to exacerbate a lot of our complications that we know, both micro and macrovascular disease. And ultimately what that means is in our geriatric population, we are more likely to need that, that insulin replacement since that beta cell dysfunction is ongoing. Uh, I wonder how this uh, affects your practice and how you think about uh, therapeutic implications. Just really understanding that that pancreas is aging and that we might have to shift our goals to thinking about replacing insulin in patients that just don't have any more beta cell function. And I think that resonates well with patients. You know, so many patients are a little bit hesitant to be on insulin. I think if we explain why that may be necessary, then they'll be much more likely to buy into our therapy. Absolutely. Well, one other thing that's interesting about the beta cell, especially as we get older here, is that we've known for a long time that postprandial control is much more important to dictating good control when A1Cs are less than 8. Yep. And really, probably that fasting glucose, in a sense, is more important when A1Cs are above 8. But here we have some data showing that in older patients over 65, that actually turns out that that postprandial control is even more important, especially when trying to drive that A1C closer to goal. And, and that may be surprising. I think to some of our colleagues. Are you familiar with this data? 
You know, it kind of surprised me since we talk so much about low blood sugars in older adults. I also think in part of a contributing factor here is that older adults seem to eat more erratically than younger adults. And I agree with you that that morning fasting glucose doesn't seem to help us quite as much. And I think patients are surprised to see how high their blood sugars really do go up after they eat. And so that's where it's really nice to have the continuous glucometers in this population. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think CGM really has helped us a lot, not only understand what's going on and make good decisions for our patients, but in addition to that, I think going back to that patient buy-in, you know, when a patient sees their glucose going high on the monitor, they're much more likely to be accepting to things like uh, prandial insulin. Absolutely. Well, you know, we all know that, that controlling diabetes is essential, right? And we really usually break this down into macro and microvascular complications. Here you see on the right-hand side of the slide, looking at more of the macrovascular complications of stroke and heart disease, where we see about a two-fold increase in risk, but also about two-thirds of patients have high blood pressure. Obviously, we're very comfortable and used to trying to treat that, but making sure that we address that. But also, moving around to the microvascular complications, we need to think about retinopathy, nephropathy, neuropathy, you know, the three main ones. And then I would also add that we don't think a lot about uh, oral health, but we know that that is critical and actually does correlate fairly well with A1C control. And it's managing all these and keeping that under control, I think, that is essential and essential to explain to our patients. Yeah, definitely. I mean, outside of the pancreas, diabetes touches pretty much every organ system. Mm -hmm. All right, and, and looking in that just a little bit deeper, you know, let's take a moment and look at the kidney. So here we have some data looking at uh, percent of patients who have GFRs less than 60, percent of patients who show signs of albuminuria, and then percent of patients who have both, right? And, and obviously both uh, really is a very high indicator of renal progression in our diabetic populations. And what we see here is that as patients get older, and particularly over 75, we greatly increase the risk of all these uh, potential signs of, of kidney uh, injury. And I think we need to be aware of that and also uh, thoughtful about when we need to get more aggressive with both diabetes control, blood pressure control, and maybe also getting our nephrologists involved. I think it's easy to underestimate um, just how severe their kidney disease is because you are expecting their GFR to go down a little bit, but then when they also have diabetes affecting that kidney flow, it's a more critical problem. Yeah, that's a great point, and we know that the kidney declines at about twice the rate in that diabetic kidney versus that non-diabetic kidney, yeah. and obviously this will have implications about different therapeutics that we might select and what their potency and risk might be, right? And we'll talk about that more as we go forward. Absolutely. So one other, you know, complication that I think we don't give enough uh, ear to is that of dementia. You know, we, I mentioned the macro and microvascular complications that I think we can all recite fairly easily, but we don't talk a lot about dementia, and yet this is one of the things, much like stroke, that patients are uh, extremely scared of when you ask them about concerns that they might have as they get older, particularly those with diabetes. And what we see on this data here is that diabetes does increase the risk of uh, cognitive impairment by up to 60%. Um, and, and I think ultimately we also have to think about these younger patients who have diabetes and, and their concern for developing cognitive impairment as they get a little bit older. And I wonder if you can just share some of your insight of what you've seen in the clinic with this. It's also important to note that this does have an excess risk in women of up to 20%. 
Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, a lot of patients are concerned about developing dementia down the road with their diabetes. Yes. And they ask, you know, can I take a supplement? Can I take a medication to prevent this? Well, I think it's important that we come back and say, maybe those things work, maybe they don't. What we do know is that if we, do, if we have better control of your blood glucose, uh, we can uh, prevent some of these concerns down the road. So another thing we often uh, think about is obesity, right? And we know that 90% of patients are either obese or overweight who have diabetes. And yet as they get older, there's another concept we need to be aware of, and that is sarcopenic obesity. So when we say sarcopenic, of course, we mean muscle wasting. And so we see patients that are obese that technically have higher BMIs and maybe have high body fat percentages, but unfortunately, due to poor glycemic control and other factors such as age, uh, begin to lose muscle mass. And that begins to impact, of course, their uh, functionality and their frailty. Uh, here we can see a continuum where this ongoing hyperglycemia can lead to chronic inflammation, oxidative stress, and mitochondrial dysfunction. And all of these things then kind of link back to uh, muscle wasting and poor muscle function, which leads to a loss of functionality. And I'm wondering, uh, how do you go about explaining this concept to your patients, um, and how does that direct uh, the therapies that you'd like to do? I like to just explain to patients that because diabetes is a disease that affects the GI tract and our absorption of nutrients, that unfortunately the body can become weakened. And so our nutrition and our activity really help us to avoid scary things like falls. And even if patients do have more body to them, they still can have malnutrition. And I think that that's a blind spot that we forget is that larger folks might still be completely malnourished. Mm -hmm. Great point. I think another thing that comes to mind here is the thought that so often we're focused on the numbers, right? We're looking at numbers and we need to sometimes look up from the chart, look at the patient and assess what their functional strength is and their abilities and their weaknesses are. All right, so when we think about our older patients with diabetes, ultimately we need to kind of meld all these different factors we've been talking about, right? We talked about the pathophysiology, we've talked about some of the psychology around uh, patients with cognitive impairment, and also their, their fears of getting older, how their therapeutics kind of fall into, the, into play there, what the risk is for hypoglycemia, and then we have to consider you know, the medical factors, right? So what are their actual complications? Are we treating those as well as the diabetes? We mentioned the kidneys earlier, and uh, not only watching them and making sure that they're not getting worse, but also does that adjust our therapeutic uh, decision-making? Do they have micro macrovascular complications? And then, you know, lastly, the piece we just touched on, the functional side. Um, so from a day-to-day -day perspective, is their diabetes impairing their ability to do their activities of daily living? Are they overburdening themselves with testing too often? And we need to make sure that we're thinking about and addressing right, all these issues in a cohesive manner with our patients. Definitely. I mean, I think that just thinking about patients in the three domains, psychological, medical, and functional, sort of helps us to organize. So bridging that into how we think about therapeutics, as you know, uh, for the last 15 years or so, we've been talking about the so-called ominous octet. And we basically can break down diabetes into these kind of eight core defects of, of pathophysiologic defects. And I think this slide is really helpful to kind of look at all the different classes of medications that we now have and how they cover the different core defects. Um, and while, you know, maybe not every 
primary care provider out there has this memorized, I think this is a good reference for us to go back and look at. And you can see on this slide here that, you know, things like insulin, GLP-1 therapy in particular, are some of the longest lines around this. In other words, they're covering more of the uh, most pathophysiologic defects than some of our other uh, classes of medications. Just wondering how you use that approach in terms of the way you think about therapeutics for your patients. Yeah, Aaron, I mean, what's really helpful, especially as we try to simplify the management of our older adults, is that we try to make sure we're getting the most bang for our buck, so to speak. And it was a good reminder for me on this slide to just remember how much insulin really does do. Mm -hmm. Of course, I love the GLP-1 class. I use it a real lot in practice, as I'm sure you do as well. And also looking at the extensiveness of these lines on this graph, it really does make sense, the new um, AACE guidelines, in terms of what, what types of therapy, what classes of drug do we use? And then just remembering that there are several patients for whom insulin really is appropriate. Yeah, I think this is critical as well. And I think to the degree that we can explain this to our patients, again, I feel like this helps with uh, patient buy-in in terms of adding a medication to their, their therapy if that is appropriate. So we mentioned earlier that over time, beta cell function seems to wane, and that uh, maybe replacement of insulin and loss of postprandial control is important there. Here we have some interesting data looking at the effectiveness of fixed ratio combination versus long-acting GLP-1s over time. And what's interesting is whether the patient has had diabetes less than six and a half years or more than 14 and a half years as, as this data uh, sits, we see uh, fairly consistently that fixed ratio combinations are able to sustain uh, good results. And so to me, this certainly uh, suggests that beta cells do not become too weak over time, that they can be rescued, so to speak, with with GLP-1 therapy, and I think that's very encouraging. And I think also here the difference that we see in these two slides between long-acting GLP-1s alone versus those fixed ratio combinations, we can see that really that complementary action of, of basal insulin with a GLP-1. So in summary today, uh, looking at these pathophysiologic defects, you know, we want to remind you that, that uh, diabetes really is ultimately a, a wave that is coming our way, and it is coming at an increasing prevalence and incidence in the older population uh, as our population continues to age. Specifically, we need to keep in mind all the things that we had mentioned, that loss of beta cell function, that loss of postprandial control, the complications around diabetes and the eight core defects, and try to adjust to that when we think about our therapeutic options. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, and until next time.